Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine and today I'm joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi Joe. Hello. And Alex Stewart. Hello. Hello. How, how are you both? We're fine, thank you. Yeah. Reticent to speak over each other there, aren't you? It's a good start. Uh, today we're talking about West Ham United Football Club. Hmm? It's just going to be very exciting for us. Uh, West Ham finished 10th this year. Uh, three back-to-back victories at the end there. Getting into the 10th is the top half, isn't it, technically? It is indeed. They pushed Watford out on the final day. Yeah. So there's lots of things to talk about. I mean, we, you know, I think we're going to leave the stadium for now. Seb and I were discussing beforehand. It's kind of very well covered. We've said what we need to say. It feels know. very tired. Also, at this point, it is it's kind of, it is what it is. And, and talking about it feels a little bit antagonistic. Yeah. I mean... Um, it's, I don't think there's there's anything new to discuss yet, at least. Sure. Okay. But we're going to talk about the owners anyway. We're going to talk about Manuel Pellegrini. We're going to get Alex to talk about tactics. We're going to talk about Declan Rice, probably. Various other youth players and uh, what West Ham are doing in the uh, recruitment uh, side of the club as well, which is, which is interesting, according to Seb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seb, will you kick us off with a, a precy of West Ham 2019-20? Because I feel like... There was there was much excitement at the, at the beginning of the season, obviously after the signing of, of Manuel Pellegrini, who's won the Premier League with uh, with Manchester City, who's had a fairly illustrious career before that, also. Um, and in terms of uh, sort of a, a standard of manager signing for West Ham, Manuel Pellegrini seems like a, a good get, right? However, it was a poor start, and um, they sort of fell off everyone's radar. I think it is, if that's a fair way, but obviously other than West Ham fans. They weren't in the headlines every week, were they? No. So I would say um, there were some other issues sort of in the summer that they, they addressed. And I think a lot of the optimism came from the sense that like, the summer 2018 was when West Ham grew up a little bit. Manuel Pellegrini came in. Um, he's the first manager to have won the Premier League, to have managed West Ham. Um, but he also came in with uh, a new sporting director, who's uh, Mario Jesulis, who South American. He um, he. He he actually worked with Pellegrini before at Malaga during the initial run when Malaga were wealthy before the taps got turned off. Um, then went for a spell in the Middle East, um, which I'm uh, ashamed to admit that I don't know much about. But the taps never turn off there. The taps don't ever seem to turn off there. Uh, and then came back to Malaga. So no record in English football, but I, th- I think one of the things that West Ham have needed for a long time is uh, separation between the owners, the manager, um, and and the kind of, to sort of uh, create a seal between the different departments there. I would say that is the theme of this season. Uh, Beyond the football itself, lots of discussion has been around creating roles such as the role of sporting director at many clubs, right? Absolutely. And obviously, most obviously, uh, obviously, most obviously, that's quite uh, quite a Monday morning thing to say. Clearly, um, at Manchester United too. So it's it's dominated headlines. Um, At West Ham, um, the problem has always been that sort of each, each and every summer, you've had kind of, uh, a recruitment drive, which has been characterised really as a lunge. I said, if we'll take this player, we'll take that one, we'll take that one. There's very little rhyme or reason to it. And I think the expectation was, and it's uh, been proven to be correct, was that there would be more logic here. There would be a, uh, a, a sort of evidence of long-term planning. So in comes Pellegrini, in comes Hisulis, and in come this batch of players who actually address needs. Um, I say sort of uh, the the... The three that I would point out as being the most successful this season probably are all three defensive signings, Diop, uh, Balbuena uh, and Fabianski. Fabianski, I would argue, um, not just West Ham's player of the season, but one of the signings of the season. 
he's terrific at Swansea last year. I saw a lot of them and and he's taken that form into this year and he's been great. Diop, probably one of the finds of the season. Balbuena came, um, I think he played for Corinthians in Brazil. And I think they signed him for under four million pounds, which okay, sort of he, he had a, a season slightly disrupted by injury, but before his injury, he was absolutely terrific. He's looked uh given this is his first season in in, in England, he's been um been really good. And these three signings are the signings of the sporting director? Yeah, we're led to believe so. So there, there was a little bit of a, a strange moment um around October and November. So if everyone everyone remember, West Ham's start to the season was an absolute disaster. Um at that point it looked like Pellegrini wasn't going to see Christmas um, before seeing the sack. Um, and there was some comments or there was a suggestion that uh, David Sullivan was irritated um, by the summer recruitment. And he did what he's been guilty of in the past. And he kind of, he had his say publicly on what his manager was doing. So he took issue with... Um, did he do it from the back seat of his car? We don't know. See, the the, uh, the the sort of the comments didn't come out as quotes. They came out as sort of, uh, you know, suggestions that West Ham's hierarchy is displeased with X, Y, and Z. They were not happy at all with the signing of Jack Wilshire, which is completely fair enough because I, I, I still don't understand why that was done. I still don't. I mean, Jack Wilshire is reportedly on £100,000 a week, maybe not as a basic wage, but I think that's the sort of the, the worth of his contract. I mean, wishful thinking, I suppose, in in an optimistic sense. It's just reckless. Anyone who gives Jack Wilshire a contract which isn't just almost purely incentive-based deserves what comes next. And of course, naturally, Wilshire goes down um, in in the autumn and I think he played a a total of, uh, after the first four games, played about 50, 60 Premier League minutes after coming back from injury. Sad, he was a talented player, but it's over now, I think. it's um, He is... He's, a, he's sort of a, a damaged footballer. Would now be the time to ask you about Samir Nasri, or is that later? <sighs> you, well, we can we can do that. I mean, I I understood the merits of it. I mean, Nasri. I remember the sort of at the point at which Nasri was signed, um, West Ham had lost um, Manuel Lanzini was out for pretty much all of the season. Um, so, you know, a hugely influential player for them. Andrei Yarmolenko had, I think, only played took part in, in seven or eight games um, before serious injury. So they, and, you know, none of the forward, none of the, the sort of the designated centre forwards, I'm not in, including Marko Inatovic in that, none of them were really giving the contribution they, they're there to give. So you're trying to add a little bit of creativity. You're trying to do it um, without a big transfer fee. It's very difficult to find players that are available at that time of year that can actually, A, make a difference in the Premier League, but also, B, have the resumes which prove that they can make it. So... I it, it, superficially, it looks like a typical West Ham nonsense signing, but actually, you know, fair enough. It's a little bit of a gamble. Nasri probably wasn't in a position to command an exorbitant wage because I imagine his list of suitors was pretty short, given that he was coming off a ban. Also, he's the wrong side of thirty, hadn't played football for a very long time, so you know, he probably didn't have many options. So I, I don't have much of a problem with that. Um, so I, I, I'm actually. I, the expectation that sort of that existed a year almost a year ago, I think it was fair enough. And I, I think um they've only finished tenth, which given their spend and given their resources, is actually a pretty poor effort. Um, and if you'd asked 
probably people at the club and also fans two or three years ago with the news of the London Stadium, mm -hmm. you would have expected that 10th would be the very bottom of where the expectation would be to finish. Well, I think so. Look, in football, I, I think um, perceptions take a little bit of time to catch up with reality. But that but that perception, I mean, was hailed as a, a new exactly. era for the, for the club, a new era for London even. Exactly. I mean, I, I think the grievance I probably have is that sort of West Ham is still spoken about as this, this kind of underdog club who you know, who are what they were in the 1990s, whose ambition, the extent of, who, of whose ambition is to kick Tottenham in the balls a couple of times each season. And if that happens, then it's been a good year. And that doesn't really tally with the resources they're at their disposal or, you know, their capabilities in the transfer market or infrastructurally what they, what they have now as a club. You said you saw a poll on Twitter as well, which was worth mentioning. <laughs> yeah, so it's a couple of weeks ago, I think it's probably about a month ago now, where it was... Um, it was a the Twitter account of a um, like a, a West Ham website, like a West Ham blog. And simple question: Have we had a good season? Yes or no? And then answer C was: Ask me after the Tottenham game. And rivalry is great, love it. You know these games are the kind of the bread and butter of the Premier League, and who doesn't enjoy them? But I think I think measuring yourself against Tottenham is I don't know. It's a little bit beneath beneath West Ham. Yes, Spurs are superior at the moment. They have the better stadium. They're about to play a European Cup final. But I think West Ham's priority has got to be, we should be looking to be the best of the rest. There is no reason why they can't sort of, okay, Watford, they finished above Watford in the end, but Watford are an FA Cup final. Why are they not competing properly with clubs like Wolves, with clubs like Leicester? Okay, there's a, a disparity of resources. Um, Wolves have fairly some fairly obvious advantages over them um, organisationally. But that should be West Ham's target, not just kind of, a couple of games against Spurs and not being relegated, which I feel is a really outdated um, measure of success. Like if I was a West Ham fan, finishing 10th in this league with the kind of the, the sort of the, the limitations that exist in the bottom half of it, you know, players like Felipe Anderson and Declan Rice. And, you know, we talked about Barbuena and Diop and Fabianski and the effect that they've had. Seems too good. Theoretically, that squad is too good to be finishing where it is. If you were answering the poll seriously, though. Yeah. No, it's not a good season. I mean, it's finished well. Um, they've knocked over a couple of teams that have either not had very much to play for or have had their attention elsewhere. Do you, um, do you read much into the appearances thing that 10th looks a lot better than 11th? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot easier to spend the summer looking at a league table when you're in the top half of it. Well, but that's I, the thing. I, I don't see it as a kind of... I see sort of places 10 to 15 almost as being interchangeable now. Like it's kind of, you have, the, the, the thing the Premier League has created is this big disenfranchisement between the top six teams, um, probably the bottom four or five and everyone else. Um, and I just, it just feels a bit disappointing given, you know, West Ham are the kind of side, when you, when you turn up to watch them, they're the only team in the division who I have absolutely no idea about what I'm going to see. Just because they could be anything. There, there are so many players in there. Oh, I saw them at Southampton when they were great. Felipe Anderson gave, for my money, one of the, top 10 individual performances that I saw of the season. Absolutely fantastic. Their recovery from a losing position was great. And then you can see them on other days and you just think, how? So they're baffling. I, I have real, no real sense of, of what their identity is. And I think that feeds into the perception of them as kind of another one of that sort of fatty middle group of teams. Mm -hmm. Well, Alex, this seems like a good time to ask you, since we're talking about identity, is it easy for you to spot from your tactical research what West Ham's uh, attempted identity is on the pitch? There's certainly 
trying to do similar sorts of things on a fairly regular basis. So it's, it's interesting just to pick up on a couple of things that Seb said there. Um, Sam Tai from Bleacher Report did a thread of marking managers out of 10. And Pellegrini, he gave a question mark to and said, you know, on, on one day you'll see West Ham 3-0 up against Arsenal and on another day they'll be 3-0 down against Fulham. You, you just don't know what you're going to get. Um, and I think part of why they finished where they are this season is the performance of Fabianski, who I think probably is the signing of, of the last uh, summer because West Ham have overperformed in terms of relationship to XG, but the, the greater part of that overperformance has been conceding fewer goals than you'd expect, and that's down to him. Can you explain for people listening what... what- what you just said, what that means. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Just the last bit there. Great. Um, yeah. So XG is basically a way of measuring the quality of chances. So XG4 looks at, um, you know, where you're shooting from and works out based on previous history, how likely a goal is to be scored from that. XG against by default is the same thing, but from a defensive perspective. So According to most tables, you'd expect West Ham to have conceded somewhere around 65, 66 goals. The fact they've conceded fewer than that and won maybe one or two games more than you'd expect is because Fabianski has been so good this season. Uh, and, and I think he led the league for saves made from, from goalkeepers. And I agree with Seb that West Ham's defensive signings have been good, but they are still a team that look very porous. Um, part of that is because they are most effective when they're counter-attacking. They are a side who kind of needs to commit to an attack. Um, I'm not convinced, and I'm sure we'll talk about Declan Rice a little bit in the future, but I, I don't necessarily think he's as good as he's cracked up to be in some regards. If we look at their system, generally speaking, I mean, there has been some variation, but it's mostly a sort of 4-3-3 that looks like a 4-1-4-1 defensively. Um, Pellegrini obviously made his reputation with uh, Villarreal, um, particularly their overachievement in the Champions League. They got to a semi-final and a quarter-final put out by Arsenal both times. And there he played a a 4-2-2-2, but with one striker kind of dropping off into a 10 position and the attacking midfielders sort of pushing in and pushing out depending on where things were situationally. So he has used a 4-2-3-1, which is not dissimilar to that. Um, generally speaking, I think part of their issue at the start of the season was that that midfield three was a bit bereft of anything attacking. So increasingly, and that this is partly because like Lanzini was injured and obviously he is that sort of player. He increasingly used Snodgrass in the midfield three, who's normally a winger, to try and add some dynamism. Um, ten, ten yellow cards, by the way. That, what, was, that, was the, that, was, that was the stat that jumped out to me of all oh, really? the stats. Okay. Was uh, ten I, yellow cards. He's an angry little man. In twenty-five starts, talented footballer, but angry little man. Um, but so, so that, you know, they they kind of they have two main ways of attacking. They they are very width oriented. Um, which is not unusual for Pellegrini. He likes fullbacks to push very, very high up. And what usually then happens, and there was a, a goal, that I think it was their first goal against Leicester at home, which basically exemplified this method of attack perfectly. It's use the fullback, one of the inside forwards and the near-sided centre midfielder to create little triangles and you seek to basically manoeuvre the ball past the opposition fullback 
to then get in across either for a striker or for someone like Mikel Antonio, who's very good in the air, cutting in from the other side. So that's one way. The other way is they, they like to carry the ball through midfield quite a lot. Um, Rice will do this before releasing a pass. Uh, sometimes it'll come from Mark Noble, who kind of comes out of the defensive line and, and pressures and intercepts a lot and then releases somebody. Well, scored his goal at the weekend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there was a, a goal against, um, I think it was against Southampton, where he did that. And that's where Anatovic is always looking to run beyond the defensive line and, and get in on those through balls. The thing with West Ham is that they're, I don't want to sound pejorative, they're tactically not very interesting in the sense that, that you can see quite clearly what they're trying to do. And they're not definitively one of the sorts of things that we often look for and talk about. So they're not a, a possession-obsessed team. They're not a high-pressing team. They're not a team that's ridiculously vertical and tries to play in a kind of very, very direct fashion. They, they know what they're trying to do, but what they're trying to do isn't anything particularly exciting. Given that this is Manuel Pellegrini's first season, is it is it not possible? And also, as Seb alluded to, the number of uh, changes in, in in the playing staff, is it possible that that they are Pellegrini is trying to build a basis from which to to, to move on from as of next season? You're going back to basics, for example. If it's not clear to pick out anything particularly interesting, um, is this just sort of getting it back to neutral before moving on? There's, there's two points to that question. The first is anything particularly interesting. And, and I, think, I think sometimes you can have a team that is actually just functional and well-drilled and knows what it's seeking to do and gets better players in to be able to do that stuff. So if, it, if it's working, though. If it's working. But then the reason that it's not working is probably to do with frailties in who you're asking to do it. And West Ham have suffered with injuries, particularly in, in positions going forward. So, you know, you don't know whether it would have been significantly better had they had those players available. There is a pattern, there is a style there that you can see. It's just not exhilarating. Having said that, I think the inference would be because Pellegrini was retained after that really pretty disastrous start, my expectation is that that plus his reputation as a good coach and as a thoughtful coach means that West Ham are looking to do that. They are looking to support him through another transfer window with this recruitment team in place. You know, you can't, you can't chuck people in in the summer and expect them to have a team in their image ready to go two months later. That, that's just not how it works. And if, you know, the knee-jerk reaction would have been to look at how they started the season and go, right, it's not working with Pellegrini, let's get Alan Pardew in. The sensible thing to do is to say, no, no, you know, we can see what's happening here. Some of these younger players are performing well. It is promising. There's a kind of a spine of a team there that looks like it could be quite interesting. I, you know, from a recruitment perspective, they have to strengthen up front um, because they don't have anybody younger coming through in that area that I'm aware of. But through the rest of the team, you can see, you know, there's, there's a good blend there. Um, it will be interesting to see whether he, whether he pushes on in terms of the style um, or whether it's based on getting a couple of better players into those positions. They certainly need to, to strengthen defensively. At the moment, really all they're doing is looking to kind of stop up the middle, have a kind of fairly passive 
mid block in that four one four one system. We, you know, it's pretty it's pretty solid, but it's not it's not a team that looks hungry to win the ball back necessarily. It's it's odd. I think um, a couple of seasons ago, for for a good few seasons, West Ham were really high up for interceptions. Um, they were they were quite a, a good team at aggressively winning the ball back and then looking to do something with it. Pellegrini has made them more passive, and I think that's probably because he wants to shore up that defence. Maybe he didn't have confidence in in the back line until you know he'd had time to deal with them a bit. Also, many of their key players are on the older side, right? I mean, rushing around the pitch for 90 minutes seems like a bad idea if you are yeah, training in long-term I, injuries. I, I think that's reasonable. I mean, you, Noble would certainly fit into that bracket. Arnautovic is 30. Um, I think otherwise, you know, Rice is young. Uh, Diop's young. Um, obviously, Zabaleta at right back is not, but, but has still before, been pretty consistent. The forward line is is a little bit older. And, you know, as we've talked about before with managers and, and teams like Klopp and Liverpool, for example, the defence starts up front, right? A lot of the pressing and the intercepting is attempted higher up. Oh, the pitch. I we, see what you're that's saying. What I'm saying. Yeah, it, well, uh, I mean, not, actually... Not the right players in the right positions to, to do that, maybe? Well, it possibly. Arnautovic does press a bit. Um, he when, presses when, for when a move to China, to. doesn't he? When yeah. he <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> is that I, what happened? Can you? We, we are going to talk about that, actually. We'll, we can we'll do that later. later. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I... I don't. I don't know. Is the honest answer. I mean, it, it's it's very difficult. That that's the sort of area where you stray into. You know, you you can analyze what happens, but it can be very difficult to know whether they're asking for a mid block in that way because they feel that they don't have. I mean, my expectation would be that it's because Mikel Antonio and Felipe Anderson, who are probably the two first choice wide players consistently through the season just aren't that strong defensively and therefore it makes more sense for them to fall back and be buttressed by the fullback behind them than it does to have them herring around after the ball and possibly leave them open. So uh, if you were Manuel Pellegrini, let's imagine that, what would you do? Forget about recruitment, we're going to talk about that, but just in terms of the, of the play. How would you make it interesting? How would I make it interesting? I, I'm Probably the easiest answer to that is recruitment. I think you you want to have a more dynamic striker. You don't want to be relying on Arnautovic, who is gifted, certainly, but temperamental at times and doesn't necessarily have his heart in the right place. Um, I would look at a, a spine of, you know, Diop and Rice, and Noble's probably still got another season in him um, as, as, as reasonable through the middle. There's definitely stuff to build on there, but I think they need to, and I think Felipe Anderson was the first signing of this sort, but to elevate themselves, they need to add just a little bit more dynamism, a little bit more speed of thought in the attacking areas. You know, you can, you can see them struggling to break down teams that sit deep and where plan A and B don't work, there's nothing else. There aren't those, those players who, and I guess this is why, someone like Sam Nasri was considered, you know, that player who sees something a little bit differently. There's, there is something quite functional about West Ham at, at this point, And that's, you, you can't necessarily coach those instinctive moments of, of excellence. You just need to buy them. Yeah. Okay. Well, I suppose we should talk about recruitment now then. I mean, it's what people want to hear anyway. It's the summer, the transfer window. It's opening quite soon. It's opening it? soon. June the 1st. Wow. Mm. 
Um, I'm still so- waiting for my call from someone. <laughs> yeah, it's going to come, guys. It's late in the day, isn't it? Uh, Alex mentioned there, and you mentioned it also, Seb, um, that there is a, a clear need for recruitment in the forward areas. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and also anywhere else that you think would uh, would be required? Well, I think I'd start further back. I think, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about dynamism. I think um, a couple of fullbacks wouldn't hurt. Uh, yeah, what's happened to Aaron Cresswell? Because about a season ago, he was being talked about as, you know, fantastic young fullback. Lots, lots of people were, were discussing him. He appeared in lots of the gossip columns. He, he's sort of fallen off it since he came back from injury, right? He's had injury and, I mean, it, it, it's what happens. I mean, in a position which is that physically demanding, it's quite similar actually to the, to the situation that Danny Rose faced at Spurs. He's not but young. He's not, he's not a young man anymore. And when you come back and when you're playing... Is he not? No, he's 29. Yeah. No. But, but he just that, seems that way because that? Yeah, he, he, I know he jumped what you mean, from, from, from the championship. So it seems that he's, he yeah. hasn't been around. Yeah. Like Jesse Lingard, twenty-seven. Am I still the same age I was? No, we've had so many interruptions to the pod, though. Probably not. That's probably probably ticked over. But I, I, I think, um, I think I want um, a more modern style of fullback or or younger fullbacks. Definitely at right back. They're expensive, um, Seb. Well, they are expensive, but then that's the kind of that's the gear change you need in a side. Often, when you don't have, we don't really have natural wingers in the Premier League anymore. West Ham really don't have natural wingers. They have players that want to cut inside. And when that's the case, you've got to have players that sort of are young enough and have the athletic capabilities to cover the literal yardage. Um, Cresswell, uh, I, th- I think, I still think of Cresswell as a you know, six, seven out of 10 players, perfectly decent Premier League footballer. Uh, Pablo Zabaleta on the right side, clearly seen better days. Ron Fredericks, a good player, but also older than people think he is. I mean, he's, he's in his late 20s now, which is, a, I think, 26 or 27. I mean, not late, late 20s. But he's not, he's not a 21-year-old with a couple of years to grow into Premier League life. Um, so that's, that's a necessity. Um, the number nine position is difficult. I mean, uh, I, think, I think it becomes clearer when people realise that Arnautovic really has to go. Because Marko Arnautovic, at every point in his career, has been a problem. For his yeah, club. right. Tell me, tell explain to me what it was that <laughs> happened again, because uh, I, I I remember something happening, and it came up in in my limited research for this podcast, uh, and I f- forgot. Marko Natovic mid season got a very generous offer from a Chinese Super League club. And when, when did he join West Ham? Uh, eighteen months ago, he joined from Stoke, right? From Stoke, yeah. Um, the season before Stoke went down. Um, Natovic. I don't know whether he's a bad professional, but he's a strange guy. Like, a, I'm sorry, just to clear that up, did he want to leave and he they refused to sell him? It's still a little bit unclear, but it seems that way. Let's that was the that indication. Way for the sake of, that's what was suggested. Okay. Yes, until we gave, infer from. Seb's going to do his sexy legal caveat here. No, no. What, 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 well, yeah, we, we should do that just because um, it was... We it, don't know. We don't really know, but it... Was sort of given a veneer of clarity um, halfway through the transfer window when he he released a video on one of his social media channels, which made him look like a hostage. It's bizarre when he sort of he talked in this kind of very dull, dispirited monotone about how he didn't want to leave and you know how he was loyal to West Ham. It's it's very odd if you haven't seen it. Gun right that, that you mean as, as by a hostage that he was almost reading something forced forced it, reading a message. Yeah, it was a sure. pretty dispassionate as far as far as that kind of video goes. No, it didn't feel very spontaneous. Um, but there's a story about him which which I always think about. So when he was um, when he, when he played for Werder Bremen, um, 
he joined having um, moved from Inter Milan and he was he was at Inter Milan at the time that they last won the Champions League under Jose Mourinho. When he turned up to Werder Bremen, uh, there's a bit in Per Mertesacker's autobiography when he talks about he turned up and Arnautovic had um, Champions League winner 2011 or whenever it was stitched into his boots and he hadn't played a minute of that Champions League campaign. It's just quite an odd little sort of insight into to the type of person who... He, can we can we investigate that though a little bit more? I mean, did did he purposefully have that stitched into his boots? Did he just have boots that everyone in the team got that he was wearing? I wouldn't have thought so. What can we? Re- no, you wouldn't. I feel like we're, 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 we're judging someone based on shoes. When um, when Murtasaka is telling the story, he a international footballer who had been around this kind of stuff found it bizarre, and that's not the only. I mean, I I. It's not the only thing we go on. We look, we look at things like the way he, um, the way he left Stoke, the reaction of the Stoke fans to him during his final months there, and also the way West Ham's fans have responded to him in the months since January. There's, you know, he's he's shown a kind of, you know, a, a level of petulance from time to time, which has been quite antagonistic. Um, he seemed within a year of of joining the club for what I have to believe was a, a very good wage, better than whatever Stoke were offering him. He seemed to check out awfully quickly. If I was a West Ham fan, that would annoy me quite a lot. But what 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 is the relationship with him and the West Ham fans? Mixed, mixed, mixed. I think because he's their top scorer, right? Yeah, well, I, he's a very talented player. Like, I don't think anyone would would contest that. It's just that, in keeping with what we said earlier, what are you going to get out of Marko Anatovic week to week? So, what is your your baseline level of performance from Anatovic? What is your you know, most players seem to kind of veer between six, seven, eight, you know, potentially nine. He is, he oscillates on a wider scale than that. Um, and I think what West Ham need at this point in their, in their development is not only a player that's a bit more stable, but a player that um, is committed to the, to the club for long enough to develop a relationship with the players around them. So from your number nine this summer, what you really need is not only you know, the, the obvious attributes, good finisher, good in the air, can hold the ball up, Know, good level of pace can get behind a defence, but also a kind of someone that over time can be meshed together with players like Felipe Anderson, Manuel Lanzini, with the caveat, of course, that all of those players remain at the club too. But that's really what set that that that's really one of the, the main sort of um defects with West Ham and has been for a long time. Year on year, you don't get the sense that something's building. You get a sense that seasons happen and they finish, and then a new season starts from from zero and they go again. I think what has to happen now is instead of looking to bring in six, seven or eight players over the summer, you bring in a small core that you've identified, you've taken your time over. I think you are right, both from a, a physical and technical perspective, but also mentally. You want to play for West Ham. You do not want to come to West Ham because secretly you quite like to play for Chelsea in the future or Manchester United. You want to be there because you believe in what's happening at the club. That is fundamental. What is happening at the club? <sighs> What's the message? I mean, the, the, I'm not saying that uh, antagonistically. Well, I'm genuinely I, asking, how, how do you sell that proposition to, to, to players? Obviously, it's going to be much easier with some than others. But if there was something from your understanding of what West Ham is now yeah. that you could say in a sentence in, on this podcast, that, that would be great for me. Wow. Okay. Um, well, I think they are. They can credibly claim to be upperly mobile. I mean, yeah. they have learnt lessons from the past. I think it's not a coincidence that um, previously used to hear an awful lot from people like David Sullivan on Twitter or, or, or David Gould or Karen Brady talking about West Ham in, in her son column. I thought that was 
very detrimental. Um, clearly, there has been a, uh, a collective effort to do less of that. Um, every now and again, there's a little bit which leaks out, but things like you don't get the owner's son tweeting criticism of players on Twitter with, you know, no grammar. Like these are very amateurish symptoms of amateurism almost. Um, so it would be okay if you punctuated properly, <laughs> but it kind of would. Like this is a this is a Premier League football club. This is not a you keep a those things team. in house, man. That's so, you just, I mean, you I just don't, don't do it. Like yeah. I, I, I'm sure it must be wonderful to have a dad who owns a Premier League football club. We're owns part of a Premier League football club. But there's got to be a point in which you say, "Sorry, little Jack, but actually, this is a business. This is a global industry, and we are a proper grown-up enterprise within it." Um, the time for you to have your little thing is, you know, in the future, maybe when you've, you've, you've developed some experience or, you know, nothing against nepotism. I'm sure it'll inherit his father's stake one day. Terrific. But not when sort of the indulgence of someone like that, um, not shame supporters, but embarrasses them a little bit. Come on, that's not fair. But I think this is the dividing line. And, and if you look at, you know, you get to the end of the season, people talk about, you know, dynamics in the table, people coming up, you know, uh, Wolves and Leicester moving into potentially genuine candidates for the top six next season. I think there's, there's most clubs are in that kind of middle squishy bit, as you said, the fat middle. Um, and the thing that will separate those clubs is off the pitch professionalism. Now, first and foremost, that is recruitment, that is sports science, training academies, that kind of stuff. But I also think the way that a club presents itself and the way that a club talks about itself and, you know, to my mind, it's, it's not a coincidence that if you look at, for example, Manchester City, a huge amount of investment has also gone into their media team, their training facilities. They present a hugely corporate image. They are a corporation whose product happens to be, you know, people running around playing football but everything about them smacks of professionalism. And I think the clubs that are most likely to make that jump are the ones that are, are presenting themselves in a similar kind of way. And I think you're right. If West Ham are heading in that direction, that can only be good for them. I, I still don't see them as... I think there's a lot of clubs that think they're upwardly mobile, but I also think that they're saying that with maybe... They are aware, maybe they're not, but that it's it's very glass ceilinged. There's only a few that I think are credibly Finan actually upwardly financially, mobile. Financially, they are upwardly mobile, though. I mean, it's just it's, uh, that's undeniable. Well, yeah, but that's every, every, everyone in the Premier League that's, is financially no, no, upwardly no, but, but, mobile. But, 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 with, because... but with distinction, West Ham are as a result of um, yeah, their inheritance of the of the London Stadium, plus the reason why every other club in the Premier League is upwardly mobile. But I think there are different stages here in that sort of, obviously, you're, let's call stage three the Manchester City level where, you know, you have the, the wealth to, to, to have aspirations beyond the game, if you like. Let's put it that way, in a you know, non-suable way. Like taking over a country or yeah, something. Yeah, it's kind of like, so, so there's a, that, that's, that's level three. West Ham have kind of evolved a little bit from being, I always thought that the ownership wanted to be known as savvy football men in the past. They wanted to be seen as people that understood how to plot their way through the game. Whereas, of course, a successful football club, successful owners employ people that do that for them and then say absolutely nothing. It's not a coincidence that, you know, in truly successful clubs, you hear nothing from the ownership. I mean, how many times does Scott Duxbury talk in public, the uh, chief executive at what, what, or how many times 
do you hear from Fosin or Jeff Shee or you know, anybody in the top six, really? And so they've kind of grown out of that stage, which is really encouraging. And, and that's kind of, you know, that's, that's a, maybe that's a bare minimum, but I would be heartened by that if I was a West Ham fan. I do not want to see transfer rumours published on the, on, the, on the official website, you know, stuff like that. I don't want to see tweets from, from owners or owners' relatives. So the proposition, for me, a, a potential new signing, maybe, um, maybe have a little bit of an issue playing in London Stadium. I, it's not a great footballing venue. It's a, I'm sure it's very good for, for rugby and athletics and concerts and what have you, but I've been there and I, I personally don't like it. Um, I think that's a bit of a tough sell to the very best players in the market. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice balance of successful coach maturing football structure you do now have a director of football in there wealth which whether we like it or not is really really important they can afford to play pay players a lot of money um you know and the the capability potentially to grow like stratford is not my idea of a footballing environment but there is potential there for it to be something more than it is at the moment what that is i don't know i don't understand the lease well enough to know how west ham grow into it over their remaining 96 years i think they've still got left on it but that it's a it's that's conjecture but i think it's a decent proposition i also think west ham is more stable financially than it has been in a really long time part of that is um part of that is the broadcasting contract of course part of it is also not having the vast amounts of debt that were on the club before um sullivan and gould took it over um and they are or they should be safer from relegation than they have been in a really long time I mean, previously, every season, West Ham, there was always an outside chance that West Ham could find themselves in trouble. I think with the experience of earlier this season, with Pellegrini's coaching, with a transfer policy, which seems to be, um, I can't really come up with a better term, but more grown up, less like um, someone having a go on football manager. I think they are, they are a, a, they're attractive in a way that they haven't been in quite a long time. I want to talk about the the Davids briefly. You've mentioned them there. I rewatched um, a video that we put out, or two a two part video that we put out last year, written by James Montague um, about the history of uh, the Davids, Sullivan, and Gold. And um, I think it's really interesting the way that you talk about them as uh, having an opinion, tweeting about it a little bit too much. Karen Brady with the Sun column, that sort of stuff. Wait, and wait, I want quick quick mm-hmm. caveat. Look, I I, I went into. Um... Uh, the history of, of Brady's son columns last night when we were doing research. And she hasn't written about West Ham for a really long time. So she, that's oh, sure, stopped, sure. which is good. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to say doesn't really pertain to Karen Brady anyway. It pertains to, pertains to our two Davids. Um, obviously, their, their, their first proper industry was the, the sex industry or porn industry. And a, a, a great quote that features in the video from David Sullivan uh, says that he's not the sort of man who will pretend to the neighbours that he has a different industry. He will tell them, I work in the adult entertainment industry and I you know, made loads of money and met loads of women, is essentially what he said. And I wonder if, because you know, they've, they've been, I mean, he, was, he went to, to jail for a while as well. Uh, and, and throughout uh, you know, the late 20th century, under various censorship laws, and as, as the modern law came to sort of understand and embrace pornography in the way that it does now, it didn't then. So both of the Davids were under the cosh from the media, from the police. During the uh, time at Birmingham City. Yeah. yeah, particularly then as well. And I wonder if that has uh, contributed to 
forming uh, David Sullivan, particularly, who is now a billionaire, um, w- from starting out selling pictures of naked women on pieces of paper for a pound. Um, if he, he's been, he's had people throughout his entire sort of adult life telling him that he shouldn't be doing this and he shouldn't be doing that, and, and he's done everything in spite of that. That his natural personality might be to have an opinion when maybe he shouldn't or to say things when maybe he shouldn't. Do you think that that might play into that West Ham culture at all? Yeah, of course. Like, I mean, your life's experience are always going to instruct the way you behave. Um, But it's just not helpful. Sure. Like David Sullivan, um, I think in in my mind, you do, you you kind of cringe when when he tweets or when he, not when he tweets, but when he's quoted, when he's critical of something that's going on in the club or when he says something which deliberately or otherwise destabilizes a manager, it's like, stop it. You own the club and that is enough. You know, your family is, um, you, you have been a great success in your life. The way you've been at success is, is not for me to judge personally. But now that you have it, you have to, one of the, the, one of the most important things of football club ownership is having the humility to recognize that you don't actually know the game as well as you think you do. You know the, you know the game as well as, as the guy sitting on his sofa. Or as, I, or as me, or as Alex, or as you. Are you saying Alex doesn't know the game well enough to be a sporting no, no, director? No, just, I just mean that like it's you need to employ people with actual expertise, and not just in the sporting sense. In the in the in are the you saying that Alex sense. doesn't have actual expertise? Al- Alex has all the expertise, but this is the point: you find out what people. You, you, yeah, you need people to run the departments in your football club. It is not enough just to know the players and be able to pay for them. You employ specialists. Because it is not, football is not as it was in the 90s. It is not a, let's have a go with that player, give that manager a go. That is not, those are not the tenets of successful ownership anymore. Mm. Um, There are no more goes, there are actions. If you like, yeah. Um, So I'm I'm sure you're absolutely right. I'm sure that that part of his personality is derived from experience, you know, in his younger years and the things he's had to fight for and, you know, the battles that he's fought. I I have no doubt Defending himself. Defending himself and, and having to be forthright and having to having to to kind of prove to people that you are more than they think you are. I'm, I'm sure that has a great effect, but it doesn't change it. You you need to be quieter. You need to um, when you own a football club. Yes, it is literally yours, but you are also representing an awful lot of people with your ownership. The way you behave in public, the things that you say, supporters feel that stuff. That reflects on their club, and they were there for a long time before you were there. And probably a long time after you're gone too. So there is a responsibility that comes with it. And it's very unusual in business. To, I mean, football is such a weird industry because you have fans in that way to whom you are responsible and that, that there's a sense of the owner of a club is, is kind of merely a, a temporary custodian of a tradition and a history that exists prior to that and will continue on afterwards. But at the same time, and I agree with Seb, you know, that the um, the business aspect, the strategic aspect of football clubs, a lot uh, among the best ones has moved on. And, you know, previously you had this very, very odd position of a, an industry that is worth literally billions being run unlike any other industry that is worth literally billions. So, you know, it was kind of amateur and you wouldn't necessarily, yeah, obviously football managers are by and large professional individuals, but everything that went on behind the scenes and what, you know, be it marketing, sponsorship, 
uh, sporting directors, all of that kind of stuff was done in a very ad hoc basis. And and now they're sapping the fun out of everything. Well, they're not sapping the fun out of everything. Um, it's It's more that if you want to be successful, then that is an area of professionalism where you need to hire in experts who understand what they're doing. Because if you don't, then the other aspirant clubs around you will do. Um, I think, you know, the, the appointment of someone like Pellegrini is, to my mind, a very sensible bridging point. You know, Pellegrini is, I think he's not necessarily the sort of manager who's going to come in and, and put a, a stamp on a side. And if you look at the squad and you look at him, it, it does feel very desperate. It doesn't feel like there's a cohesive structure going on there. But I think he's a, a sufficiently safe pair of hands and a sufficiently intelligent guy to lay the groundwork for whoever comes after him in another season or two's time. It would suck to be that guy, right? I mean, he did that for Pep as well. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It would be interesting to go back to that appointment and kind of look at how it was perceived at the time. You know, this is somebody who reputationally, I mean, he, you know, what he'd done at... Villarreal was hugely respected. He was the, the first non-Argentine manager to win a Clausura with San Lorenzo. And that there was a lot to be said for him at that point. But then the, the Malaga period was a bit weird. Like Seb said, there was a lot of investment. They got some really talented players like Jeremy Tulolan and Isco were coming into that squad. And then the taps got turned off and it was all a bit precarious. And he, you know, remember his, his job before West Ham was two seasons managing Hebei China Fortune. So maybe he was that guy, maybe City did appoint him with a view to him founding a dynasty rather than being transitional. I can't really remember. He isn't that guy anymore. So um I think I think West Ham need to if I were them, I would see him as being the sort of guy who is going to improve the players who are improvable um and strengthen the, the 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 basics make sure that they're safe they're not going to get relegated maybe they'll go up a little bit but then really recruit astutely and intelligently with some sense of how they want to be playing in two or three years time and that's where it's going to make a difference the other thing to discuss with west ham um as is frequently discussed is their famed uh well youth academy famed still once famed once famed still. once famed once i famed. think same still? It's difficult because I think the game has changed since they acquired that reputation. And I think that's true at every club. But uh, they show more promise than most. Obviously, Declan Rice. But also Grady Degana. I, I quite like him. He, he, he sort of, um, he peaked quite early on in the season and sort of dropped off the map a little bit. But I think there's a really good player there. They had two Nathans as well. I can't remember which ones, but uh, two Nathans have signed uh, contracts. A couple of Nathans in couple there as Nathan, well. Okay. Nathan Holland. Nathan Holland is one of them, yeah. What's happening with Reese Oxford? Where's he? He's he's on loan over at uh, Augsburg, and I'm right in thinking that he was their youngest ever starting player, right? Yeah. Started against Arsenal at the Emirates in 2017 August, I think. Okay, but it, it's interesting because um, obviously it's it's barely 18 months since um, uh, David Gould had a, a bit of a Twitter rant about um, the fallacy surrounding young players. They were sort of criticised about West Ham were criticised for not um, giving. Know, they're sort of academy graduates an opportunity and he went on social media and talked about well he's just not possible he can't do it because they're shit mate well it, it was just like he was talking about how the imperatives that succeeded in the premier league 
um, and this isn't untrue, make it very difficult to blood players in a way which allows them to grow from experience and make all the things that a young player needs. Um, and then along comes Declan Rice, who had a very good season last year. And um, I, I think it's, uh, uh, I'm not sure he's, I'm with Alex. I'm not sure Declan Rice is quite the player that, um, that he's believed to be tell, yet. Tell me why not. He's Eric Dyer. I think he's a slightly better footballer than Eric he's, Dyer. He's, he's good at... Yeah, he's, Eric, Eric Dyer's a great footballer. No, he's not a great footballer. Uh, Eric Dyer he's is a good a, footballer. But it's, there's, it's... What's it, what, what kind of, what are the definitions of great and good here? Because I think Eric Dyer is a great footballer. Eric Eric Dyer um, has very useful attributes which can be placed in different positions around the pitch. He is a pretty good passer of the ball. He is quite a good one-on-one tackler. He is a very good header of the ball, primarily because he's got an enormous head. Yeah. Um, Big free, good free kicks. Quite good free kicks. Defensively, not the best. When he plays in defensive midfield, he is a bit of a problem. Um, he's not the quickest player. Um, he doesn't receive the ball particularly well. I mean, he's not. He hasn't got the very, very best first touch. So, what are you saying? He's a good footballer. I, I say, I, I would say, Eric Dyer is a seven out of ten Premier League player. Does I would that mark, make Declan Rice eight? No, somewhere around that. I think, I think Rice is the the better technical player, um, and I'm more interested in where Rice goes than where Dyer has gone. But I just, it's it's a little much to kind of elevate Dyer as the kind of right. Well, the next decade, this guy is the answer at the base of England's midfield. Well, he's, he's English, much. right? He's English. Well, he he is thing. now. Well, yes. yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> he, that, he grew up. He grew up in England. Yeah, so that it's a little tenuous. I tell you what, I read a really in, on this while we're talking about Declan Rice. I've read a very interesting article. Uh, Your in face doesn't say it was very interesting. You got well, a broad expression. You know, it wasn't that interesting. I'm, I said that to make people listening think what they're about to hear is more interesting than it is. But you've rumbled me. And it really is just a man off. talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really yeah. is just a man talking. But the uh, it was a pe- oh, I can't remember who wrote it. Um, but it was someone who had had dual nationality, uh, a footballer, and um, the the piece was basically saying that it is complicated as a when you have dual nationality, and that Declan Rice obviously got a lot of stick for his eventual decision to side with England. Um, but it's a complicated thing if you have if you have dual heritage, and that means a lot to you. And also the idea that why wouldn't you choose a nation that is more likely to feature in World Cups? I don't know. But wouldn't also you more likely to be choose choose a club. Where you might win a trophy, well, why is it suddenly weird? Hey, also a, a nation which has a better functioning football association. The IFA is, you know, FAI, sorry, is a, a basket case of an organisation, and you just have a Google of John Delaney and and you know go from there. You know, uh, Declan Rice doesn't deserve a, a second's criticism for his decision. His how he feels about himself and his heritage is his business and his business alone, um, and increasingly. Um, there are going to be more players with this conflict when they, as they get older. So it's, it's the individual's prerogative. I think the area where, I mean, I agree with that, but I also think the area where it gets complicated is when somebody is quite happy to play under 16, under 17 level because they're being selected for that other country, but are then equally happy to turn their back on a better opportunity elsewhere. I think that that's the only instance where, because I, I mean, I agree with you, but that increasingly there are people not only are people where there are, uh, should we say, dual heritage, maybe even more than that. And, and you see, you know, players whose parents are Afro-Caribbean particularly coming over here and then are able to play for either team and they have to make those decisions. And it's going to increasingly be a thing where, where people are going to choose it. I also feel that 
it seems much less cynical in football than it is with cricket or rugby, uh, where you have people who, I, I think this is probably a function of the fact that in order to be an international footballer, you really have to break into the team a lot younger or be considered for the team a lot younger than than you do with rugby or cricket, where there seems like there's a greater degree of, of players getting capped for the first time at 27, 28, 29. Um, but it, it does feel weird in rugby and cricket to have people who are very clearly, you know, only here on residency rules and are then selected. What about a system whereby the international team you played for was the country that you live in at the time? And if you want to move, then you have to play for the other team. Like if it, Reece yeah. Oxford, for example, would be playing for Germany right now, I mean, if he got called up. Definitely a dumb idea. What about it, you know, or what about if there was some kind of random role when you were born? I mean, basically... Just, just on the off chance that you were a professional footballer. What you're sort of saying is, is almost like, why don't we just do away with nationality-based yeah. internationals and have leagues playing against each other? I like the idea of a one-world government. Can we now officially, by the way, say that the Premier League is the TM or best league in the world TM because of... Oh, God. It's I mean, it's a, sort of... It brings out the weirdest type of person, though. Like, it's kind of, you know, people... people all those sorts article of discussions about, do, though. Yeah, but like, I read an article, like, when, um, when all four sides, all four English sides qualify for their European finals, there's some very strange bits of writing about why we should take pride in, in the league or something. I just, like, I think that makes a few wrong assumptions about what the league is and maybe Declan Rice knew that this is what was going to happen just as he was coming of age as a player and therefore so he that's why he selected England he wanted to bask in the reflective glory of Chelsea Spurs Liverpool and uh, an Arsenal reach sure. European finals have, have we got any more West Ham stuff because I feel like uh, we're not talking about them we're right now we're meandering now yeah. I, I'm encouraged by them I mean more so than I have been in some time I just when we talk about Pellegrini I think I think the real symptom of progress is the director of football because that was his appointment. And that is, the, that is a, a, a sign of owners. Yeah, it is because it's, it's owners ceding control. Um, and so what you see is, and we've used this description several times, but a more mature football club, one that seems to have learned from the past and is less calamitous. And you know, they managed to go through a season without anyone invading the pitch or you know that kind of stuff. And yeah, that's a pretty low bar. I accept that. <laughs> It's like managing not to soil yourself on a night out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, congratulations. <laughs> but it's it's better than it was. That's my point. I think the key is is the summer. I think if they can um, you know, build on the the sort of tenets of this burgeoning continuity, add a couple of players in who who make logical sense, and continue with the habits which have been established, the good habits and the ones that have been left behind, then there's no reason to believe that, like we said at the beginning, they can't be one of those those aspirant teams on the edge of European qualification competing, uh, competing for uh, domestic cup finals, that kind of thing. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, let's not go overboard. West Ham have uh, begun to rise from quite a, a low level with some fairly strange stuff happening over the last few years. Um, but their trajectory is at least positive now. Um, and, and, and that's good enough for now. They, at least you know, they'll be going into a new season with the same manager, with the same director of football. And, possibly with one or two exceptions and a few free transfers, Andy Carroll's leaving, with largely the same playing squad. And these are good things. These are important things in today's modern Premier League and probably more so than how much can you spend in the transfer market. You know, address your needs, get them done early, and then continue on from there. 
if if at the end of next season they're being spoken about in the same bracket as Wolves, Watford, Everton and Leicester, they will have succeeded. Absolutely. If they're Absolutely. not, then they won't have. Okay. Well, hope everyone enjoyed listening to that. Uh, Seb, thank you. Thank you, Joe. Alex, thank you. Thank you, Joe. I hope everyone enjoyed it. And uh, we will be back next week with no plan currently. TBD. TBD. We'll okay, see. fine. Um, we'll see you then. <laughs>